It's time for the number one talk show of Eastern Connecticut and Southern Rhode Island. The Stu Breyer Potpourri Talk Show on 1310 WICH. Now here's Stu Breyer. Thanks for staying with us. It's a pleasure to have my friend Tom Graney, former uh, news director at WICH. And also, uh, Tom was a recovery counselor for many, many years. He's a guy who, kind of like myself, we like to dig deep and uh, think about how things can be better. And I know Tom works so hard on that. In fact, he's got a couple of cards. Remember to be kind to yourself today because you deserve it. And uh, that's a good way to start the day. So let's say good morning to our friend Tom. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Stu. I'm profoundly grateful to be with you this morning. Thank you so much, and thanks for the work that you do. I know that uh, for many years uh, you were a recovery counselor, and uh, you've seen people go through many, many problems, as we all have gone through in our life. Sometimes we go through things that people will never know about, and sometimes when you talk about some of these things, it makes people feel that they're not alone. So tell us, for people who don't know you, Tom, like I know you, a little bit of your history. Well, uh, I was news director here from approximately 83 to 86. I worked under some amazing men, um, Jim Reed, Dennis McCarthy. I worked with you. I worked with Johnny London. I worked with um, Michael Burns. Um, I had a blast. My radio days, as I spell it, D-A-Z-E, were phenomenal. And then my son, Matthew, was born. If you can believe it, Stu, he's going to be 38 in Oh, July. my God. Yeah, he's almost as old as we are. Yes, and he is a first-time father. I am a grandfather since I last saw you. Congratulations. Thank you. She's Please. five months old. Her name is Marin Elizabeth Graney. And Marin is Irish-speak for a pearl of the sea. So if you want your priorities to be made straight, mm. become a grandparent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I got three girls. Yeah, that's amazing. They, they're probably college age now, right? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, they're <laughs> out of college and um, two out of college and one in college. And well, anyway, that's now that we made ourselves feel old. Right. So uh, here's what here's what I've been up to. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The pandemic. I was passively suicidal in uh, June and July of 2020. Uh, I had clients that were really suffering. I felt hopeless to help them. Um, they were ghosting me just because of their own psychology. Uh, they were relapsed. They were having recurrences of use of substances, and I just felt useless. So I talked to my therapist about it. He said, you do that, and you'll be a coward. You will leave your children scarred, and uh, the world will be poorer if you make that choice. And it wasn't a choice. It was passive, as I say. I didn't have a plan. I just had that feeling it'd be, I'd be better off if I didn't wake up. So that's a rough place to start, but uh, like that's the Phoenix, rough, yeah. but, but like the Phoenix do, I've risen from that uh, despair, and I mm-hmm. retired. Uh, that prompted me. That feeling prompted me to call my tax attorney and my tax preparer, and say, "Hey, can I go out? Can I retire?" And independent of each other, they said yes. So I made that decision to retire in end of December 2020. And since then, I've been on this uh, campaign, if you will, to encourage people to be kind to themselves. And I wanted to ask your listeners, I know they can't respond unless they call, what's more important, to be kind to yourself or kind to others? That can be a rhetorical question, but I'd like you to answer it, Stu. Well, if you're kind to yourself, you're going to be kind to others. Uh I know that some people uh, who are down and out, you know, got, got, uh, my theory is that when they start being kind to other people and help them out, then it, they start to like themselves better. Hmm. That's how I look at it. How do you look at it? Absolutely. You're spot on. And we did not talk about this ahead of time. But no. I've noticed since, I don't know, the last 
10 years of trying to be kind to myself on a daily basis to quiet the negative messages of my past, it has predisposed me. It's made me more desirous of being kind and loving towards others because there's an old phrase, you can't give away what you don't have. And there's an equal phrase, equally powerful phrase, you've got to give it away to keep it. So if I'm focused on self-kindness, it's going to brighten my disposition. It's going to make me want to be more giving and more interactive with people. As I wrote to you in the notes um, before our mm-hmm. get-together, there's a basic lack of civility in our country these days. There's no decorum. There's no agreeing to disagree. There's only my way and the highway. And unfortunately, we don't have conversations like we used to, you know? Uh, I have some conservative friends. I'm a liberal Democrat, more conservative fiscally as I've aged. But I can have civil conversations with people because they know me and I know them. Yeah, which, which is great. I, I love having con- But some people, you just can't do it. Right. They're, they're rock steady in their opinions, yeah, and they're not going to change. And they're, they're hell-bent on being right. And I used to counsel mm-hmm. my clients because they've had difficult relationships in their lives. And I would say if somebody is hell-bent on being right in your life, you can diffuse that by just saying, you know what? You might be right. And what yeah. can they say? You're damn right I'm right? It's basically mm-hmm. a conversation ender because what they're trying to do, Stu, is engage you in a way that's controversial and has the potential to get escalated, right? Exacerbated. We don't want to exacerbate situations. We want to calm situations. So if I bring my calm and steady self, my, um, my grounded self to a conversation and think about it beforehand like I've thought about this conversation ahead of time, I'm going to bring my more authentic self, right? And stress, Stu, um, if you're looking at me, I'm pointing my, fing- my right index finger at my brain, the prefrontal cortex. When human beings experience stress, our prefrontal cortex, and I've written about this, goes offline. And the prefrontal cortex allows us to make decisions and be verbal when we say, uh, I don't like that. But when it goes offline, I don't have the capacity to say, I don't like that. I just go mute, right? And I've had client after client say to me after the fact, gee, I wish I had the presence of mind to say dot, dot, dot. So there's science behind the trouble some of us have in standing up for ourselves, right? And there's also the fight, flight, or freeze uh, response, right? When I am threatened, this is biological, we're hardwired for this. When I feel threatened physically or emotionally, I want to fight, flight, fly away, get away, or freeze, and many times, from a standpoint, from an um, evolutionary standpoint, it's about, a, about survival. But I have to find the capacity to, to, to get that voice, you know, engage my voice, to speak my mind in a civil and appropriate way. Otherwise, the abuse, if it's happening, is going to continue to happen because I haven't stood up to it. Or, as I used to say to my young children, Laura was probably 8 and Matthew was 12 at the time. She was being bullied by her, uh, for her weight. I said, just tell that person you don't have time for them. Turn on your heels and walk away. They'll probably go and abuse somebody else, but they won't be abusing you. Tell you the same thing. And these days, more so than ever, it appears like road rage and whatever. You know, when somebody is ready to get a big argument with you, what you do is kind of fuel the flame, and then it blows up into something disastrous. So words can as you know as well as I do, can change the whole perspective of everything. Words definitely matter, and the words I tell myself are extremely important because what I tell myself is probably going to be the experience of life I have out here. And I'll, I'll say it in a kind way, but when I was growing up, my parents, God rest their souls, they never used these words, Stu, but the takeaway message was, Tom Graney, you're a piece of feces, and you will never amount to anything. Well, that's tough to... 
Tough to get over. I and how did, I, how did I internalize that message? Questions mm-hmm. like, what's wrong with you? What were you thinking? If you want something to cry about, I'll give it to you. That's the worst one, right? Because it, it's got a threat of violence. Um, so we, we all, I'm not holding myself up as a, an example of, oh, worry me. We all have things to overcome. And I used to say, I'm struggling with this, this, or this. I used to say, I'm in the crucible of change, which is a fiery chamber. Now I say, I'm contending with a situation. And I'm in the loving embrace of change. You see the difference? Well, I, I, you're in the track that I want to be on. Let me just, well, we have a call. Maybe we can just, we're going to talk about civility and kindness. And we're also going to talk about uh, advocacy journalism that's... Uh, you're involved in it. Hi, welcome. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Stu. I got a quick call here. Um, there's a song that I remember that kind of hinges on this uh, type of uh, talk. It's called um, Hello, My Name is Luca. I live on the second floor. And it's basically about a guy, you know, a young fellow, young child being abused. And uh, from the gist of your situation, I would oh, think yeah. the man I might know the song. I've heard that song in a long time, it. yeah. All right, thanks. Thank you. So I want to say the master emotion. Thank you for that call, by the way, because music is a powerful um, thing in our lives. It, it's it's the soundtrack of our lives. It's it's mm-hmm. referred to that for a reason. And my latest article was on the use of music in dealing with clients that have uh, uh, mental health diagnoses. But I wanted to get back to what you said earlier about persons intent, either road rage or daily discourse conversation, intent on arguing. What's motivating that? You have a guess. Fear and insecurity. That's what's motivating it. It seems it's people are more on edge than ever. Right. That's what it seems to me. But they're fearful and they don't recognize the fear. So because they can't deal with it internally, they want to export it and glom onto you with it or send it out to you and have you carry their fear and their insecurities Hmm. and their anger. Right. Hmm. So another form of shame is anger. Shame gets expressed as anger. Bullying is all about internalized shame. And in our society, it is epidemic. School districts, God bless them, they're doing the best they can. They are failing at stemming the tide of bullying. I've, se- I've seen it in my work at uh, a private prep school for young men. I've seen it at a Catholic school for um, preschool to eighth graders here in Norwich. It's, un- it's a big problem, and it leads to mental health issues, right? Um, persons with trauma histories are more likely to develop uh, everything from depression on this end of the scale to schizophrenia suicide. and suicide, mm-hmm. and suicide. Yeah, I've done a lot of shows on bullying, and I, and I like to do them periodically because uh, you're right. I don't. It hasn't really gone away, and uh, you know, you perceive a bully. And uh, generally, we talk about this, which we'll talk about more. And people just literally don't like themselves, so they just take it out on other kids. So they're unconscious, with no offense to them. They just haven't evolved to the place that they're more mindful of what they're thinking, feeling, and how they're acting. Mm. Right? So I can't gift that to a person. They have to develop that on their own. And in sobriety, it's called emotional sobriety, or we would call it emotional intelligence or maturity. What age does the brain, the human brain, typically uh, fully develop by? Another question that we've talked about before. I've heard different answers to that one. True. We used to think 18, right? People would track it. Well, oh, you're, you can go and, and serve in the armed forces. You can vote at 18. No, no. It's 30 to 35. So if you bathe that brain regularly at 15 or younger with any mind-altering substance, it could be caffeine, it could be sugar, it could be cannabis, it could be alcohol, you are screwing with a very immature organ that sets the stage for dependency down the road. 
WICHI. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Tom. Hello. Uh, Tom, my name's Kevin. I'm sorry I wasn't living in Norwich at the time you were broadcasting, so I missed a great era in uh, WICH history, but it's good to meet you now. Thank you. Uh, I want to first respond to your survey question. Um, I think, I mean, my answer to the question is, uh, I think probably loving yourself comes first. And I can explain that sort of from a... Uh, a biblical or a scriptural sense. Two uh, two phrases we have: "Do unto others as you would that they do unto you." We've heard that many times, and in in the uh, commandments that God gives, uh, "Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself." In both of those, there's an assumption that you love yourself, that you respect yourself, and I think that that, as you put it, is 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 the core. And if you're not able to to love and cherish and nurture yourself, you're probably not going to be, you're definitely not going to be able to nurture and cherish other people. So um, mm-hmm. I wanted to primarily respond to that, and, and thank you for having this kind of conversation, because one of my deepest concerns is that we have a lot of things going on in society. We're becoming less civilized. There's violence and uh, shootings every day. You know, it used to be if you had a shooting every month or two, it was astounding. Now they're happening every day, and we're still not—we're still not dealing with it because we're not talking about it. We're talking about Biden and Trump. We're talking about uh, politics and not talking about people and ideas. Well, we got a conversation going this hour, so I guess we're getting on the right track, Kev. It's a good one. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your call. So, Stu, let me let me put it this way. Um, I have been out of radio since 86, 87, when I left for a uh, PR job with uh, first the Travelers Insurance Companies for 18 months and Aetna Life and Casualty for eight and a half years. And I still speak in clipped tones or clipped words as if I was doing a radio interview. I can't loathe me and love you. Now, people will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, um... Why is that, Tom? You know, play the devil's advocate. Why is that, Tom? Because if I'm walking around with hate for myself, yeah. I'm going to see life, my life and the lives of others through a, through a lens that's either uh, like Winnie the Pooh, oh, bother, or Eeyore with his head hanging low, or Pigpen with that cloud of dust around him. And I'm not able to fully engage in life. I'm not able to grow uh, in my maturity. When you start using a substance, and I don't want to lean too, too much into this, you literally shrink the neurons in your brain, and therefore you don't um, age, you don't mature chronologically. So I'm going to give myself as an example. I am the proud um, man who has chosen with the help of a higher power, not to drink for 31 and a half years. And I have my former wife, Lisa, to thank for that. She asked me on December 28, 1991, hey, Tom, would you consider not drinking for three months? And I was like, sure, honey. Now, why was I so happy to agree to that? Because I had no clue that I had a problem. But when I started drinking at 17, I stole a can of Budweiser, sweaty, in the summer of, uh, be- between my junior and senior years in high school. And I drank that can of beer with two of my friends and got absolutely cocked on a third of can of beer. I started the process of shrinking my neurons. So I jokingly say, oh, I started drinking at 17. I can add 31 to that. I have the mentality, the maturity of a 48-year-old. So even though I'm 65, I like to think of myself, and I do project a very youthful 
outlook in life. Um, so look back to the bullying for a second. I had a client say to me, I never realized that I was a bully until I listened mm-hmm. to the messages I gave myself. How remarkable is that? I never realized I was a bully. And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to tell me that she harmed somebody else with her words or whatever, until I listen to the messages I say to myself. Profound still. That, that is profound. And uh, I think a lot of bullies think that uh, they're going to be respected because they bully or they're tough or so many variations to that, huh? Well, if you want a really great characterization of a bully and the um, impact it had on one person's life, watch the 2000 classic movie by Ron Howard, directed by Ron Howard, called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It features Jim Carrey, who could be a, a candidate for bipolar um, in that movie, uh, the way he is kind of over the top. But as the Grinch, as a child, he is bullied by the future mayor of Whoville. I'm very well acquainted with this. I've shown it to clients for mm-hmm. the last 20 years. And he, what does he do when he's bullied and uh, derided by the future mayor he leaves class he gets angry and he throws his book and he and he takes the christmas tree and he holds it up his head and he says i hate christmas and everybody's cowering and running for cover what does he do Stu? he goes to the mountaintop and then they have this um i don't know what the movie term is but they do this time lapse where he goes from a child to a heavy breathing adult as the grinch and he takes out a phone book and he says hmm Alphabetically, Alexander Albert who? I hate you. Hate, 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 hate. Loathe entirely. So he's so full of hate by that one experience of being embarrassed and bullied in front of his peers. And by the way, the teacher can't stifle a laugh, so she's she's complicit in that as well. Uh, It ruined his whole life until who? Until Cindy Lou came into his life and offered him to be the cheermeister. Right, And the famous scene that I used, I'm doing a presentation tomorrow, actually it's taped for the Connecticut Certification Board, mm. is where the Grinch comes up with all these reasons why he can't accept the invitation to be the cheermeister. Now, mind you, he's been in the mountains for decades, and he's very fearful of coming down and being judged. And he comes up with the best example of, uh, of selfishness and hoarding his talent. He says, solve world hunger, pause, tell no one. So he's going to do this amazing thing, but because he's filled with anger and fear and righteous indignation, we say in in 12-step recovery, he doesn't want to share that great thing that he's going to do or has done. Solve world hunger, tell no one. Right? And then the other ones are kind of more jokey, which is like, oh, 6 o'clock, jazzercise. Uh, 6.30, dinner with myself. I can't cancel that again. So why do I bring that up? Because when you're dealing with anybody, so I don't have to have uh, shown that in the context of substance dependence. I can show that to anyone. I show that to the uh, eighth graders at a local Catholic school, and they are amazed. And the other thing I want to mention before I forget, I became known, in quotes, for the creative counselor by using Pinocchio. When Pinocchio goes to Pleasure Island, you would be amazed if you look at it carefully. This is the original version, the original Disney version. All hell breaks loose. He's smoking blunts, which, well, they're cigars, but I think they're blunts. He's drinking beer out of a keg. He's playing pool. You know, he's, he's hanging out with this kid, Lampwick, who is obviously much more mature, uh, maybe not age-wise, but experience-wise, than Pinocchio, and he leads him down the path. 
and Jiminy Cricket finally rest, comes to the bar that they're drinking at and playing pool at alone, Jiminy and, uh, excuse me, uh, Pinocchio and Lampwick, and he says, come, come quick before you get worse. What's he saying? You're not yet over the line in dependence on your substances, but you're getting close. And they run up, and I showed this to the um, alternative high school class in Groton one year, many years ago, when I was still at SCAD, my first job in counseling. And one of the kids says, gee, I wonder if they, they climbed 12 steps to get to the top of the mountain. I said, that's amazing, let's count. And you can only count about five before the camera cuts. But he gets to the top, and what does Jiminy Cricket say? You gotta jump. So I say to clients, what is he being asked to do? And that is to take a leap of faith. If you want to make any change in your life, I'm going to propose to you that you have to take a risk. You have to take a, le a re leap of faith. And that's what I did when Lisa asked me not to drink for three months, which has turned into, I feel very blessed to say this, almost 31 and a half years. It will be I just want to make this point, and I think it's an important one, and uh, see how you evaluate what I'm saying, that if you don't like yourself... It's very difficult to have a relationship because you can't believe that anybody would really like you. So many times uh, a relationship might be cut off soon, or you just say they're never, uh, they, or you don't believe that anybody really loves you. So the relationship category, that can really do a number on you. Huh? Yes, if we go into that relationship wounded, and by the way, parentheses, I recommend to all my clients that are in relationship or contemplating one that you go into therapy. Right, because you are going to benefit by a disinterested third, observe, third observer looking and watching and commenting on how you interact. When I went into therapy with Lisa, the therapist said, did you hear what you just said? And of course I didn't, because I was listening to speak and respond. I wasn't listening for content. I said, no. And she, she set me straight. She said, you said that with such a condemning negative tone and parentheses. I'm not surprised you're having trouble in your marriage. Right? And I don't mind getting personal, Stu, because this is my life. And if I don't have the courage to be vulnerable to you and your listeners, there's not going to be meaningful change. There's, this is the fertile soil, soil of change, is personal vulnerability. In our society, it is not valued for men to be vulnerable. I don't say to my clients, oh, you were triggered by the sight of alcohol? I said, when was the last time you felt vulnerable? And what did you do? How did you act off of feeling vulnerable? Because oftentimes, it's not even recognized. Because when I'm vulnerable, I want to eat. When I'm vulnerable, I want to have sex. When I'm vulnerable, I want to gamble. When I'm vulnerable, I want to run. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and he's got this great clip, which maybe we can find in, in the break. Well, I'd love to. <laughs> he says, what do you, this is before Congress. He's, he's testifying in 1969 before Congress to get money for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And he, got, he wound up getting $2 million or whatever it was, help getting. He says, what do you do with the mad that you feel? What do you do? How do you handle being mad? And in corporate America, they said, well, your boss is either an absorber or a projector. I was like, what's that mean? Well, they're either going to absorb the criticism aimed at you and your department, or they're going to project it, and you know, what, you know what flows downstream, right? They're going to project it on you. Oh, Tom, you didn't do a good enough job. Now we got to correct this. I had, I've been blessed with bosses that were absorbers that said to me, hey, you know what? When you travel, Tom, and I did a lot of travel, I want you staying at the best hotels. I want you going to the best restaurants. You're away from your family. And I want to say something about that. Unfortunately, my corporate job became my life. I was living to work, not working to live. And I was buying my children presents 
And then I realized, too, they didn't want my presence, P-R-E-S. Your, your presence to be there. Yes, P-R-E-S. <clears throat> E-N-C-E, however you spell presence. That's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, they told me that they, they didn't like the presence because they couldn't say, Daddy, we don't want you traveling so much. So I got offended because I wasn't involved enough to recognize what they were really saying. So what are we talking about? A complicated life. We all live complicated lives. So the more we can simplify it through good health, proper nutrition, adequate rest and exercise, and some kind of spiritual approach to life, the better off we're going to be. My friend Tom Graney is with us. We'll take a little break, and we're going to stay with this subject because it's so very important. Tom, uh, so you do lectures, you say? You've got a video? Uh, I present at conferences. I've presented conferences. for between 60 minutes and six and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And my uh, topics are what's called for the dual diagnosis client. Uh, so I'm, I'm teaching other clinicians how to be more effective in dealing with clients that have both a substance use diagnosis and a mental health diagnosis. It's called dual diagnosis. Okay, there are a lot of things in my head, so I will try to get to them right after this. So my friend Tom Graney is with us, uh, what I think is a very pertinent words, particularly these times when uh, there appears to be less civility and more anger around and more love and giving and kindness, although I know a lot of people that are in that category, but there are some that have gone astray, in, in my opinion, and possibly Tom's too, of course. We're talking about just another thing I wanted to add about uh, liking yourself. I have interviewed so many, so many women who have been abused by their husbands, and, and they, they would say that, I, I deserve that. I, I, it's me. I, I'm provoking this person. <clears throat> and it must take a lot of work to get them to realize <clears throat> you're not the problem. Well, that's an excellent point. I was shocked the first time that a female client said to me, Tom, you know what? The physical wounds were healed, will, will heal, but the emotional scars will never go away. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about intimate partner violence, which unfortunately I experienced in my own family of origin, it's devastating. And when I read uh, things like I did in the New London Day years ago about that T-shirt, I never used the name for the T-shirt, but it was popular in the 60s, and you would roll up your cigarettes, or maybe it was sleeveless. They had two references to that T-shirt, the pejorative one, the stigmatizing one, the horrendous one, two references in two different articles within the same week. So I wrote a letter to the editor, and I said, you know, intimate partner violence is no joke. So there's a wonderful organization uh, called Safe Futures. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. I think they're expanding. I read something in the paper about them. I was a volunteer for them for a little bit. I've referred many, many people, men and women, because uh, men get abused too, um, to that organization for counseling and other assistance. So, uh, yes, unfortunately, that's an epidemic. You know what the worst day for uh, intimate partner violence is? The worst day? What day of the year? No, I don't. Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, my goodness, really? So, so you add alcohol to uh, somebody, somebody that's angry and or his team loses or he, you know, just... Yeah, it's, you know, it's like you had a bad day at work, you kick the dog when you get home, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Which, yep. of course, makes no sense whatsoever. So you do a lot of advocacy journalism, and I know you, a lot of, uh, you do a lot about uh, stigmatizing language. Uh, just tell us about that aspect of things you do. So I lived in uh, Portland, Maine uh, for three months in um, the summer of 2021, and I was able to write this article. So in, in, uh, in 
journalism in broadcasting, there's something called an evergreen story, which you can use any time. So on a Friday or a Saturday, we would look for stories that we could either use on the weekend that were evergreen or on Monday morning when it might be a little bit slow. So I had this article already written. It was an open letter to President Biden uh, when he said, if you use derogatory language to anybody that is, is in my administration, you will be out the door, or words that affect. And I had written this article, and then I was in Maine, and I found myself learning about the third annual opiate, opiate summit that uh, Governor Mills was uh, chairing uh, in Maine, and they had satellite offices, satellite recovery centers throughout Maine that they were broadcasting this live to, and I sat in on the presentation, and I said, wow, it's time to take that article out about asking President Biden to lead the way and include Governor Mills. So it's in the Portland Press-Herald. It was July 16th, 2021. You can access it by going to thepressherald.com. And it's a column called Maine Voices, M-A-I-N-E. And um, it's all about ending the use of stigmatizing language. We've all heard those words. I don't use these words, but for our conversation, I will. No. Oh, he's, a, he's just a drunk. Oh, he's, mm-hmm. an, he's a hopeless addict. Yeah. You know, there's no joke about uh, this thing called fentanyl. And we shouldn't be using that kind of language anyway because it is uh, pejorative. But there is an element in our society that's unknown, Stu. And if you can look at me, I'm holding my two hands over my right temple. And I'm going to call it aesthetic anxiety. Uh, in maybe hubris, but I think I coined that phrase when I was in grad school in 98, 99. And the aesthetics are the look of something. So aesthetic anxiety is society does not want to see the horrors, whatever they may be. Uh, like, I don't want to believe that 110,000 people died of overdoses in the United States in, in uh, uh, 2022, uh, up from 93,000 in 2021. Um, I don't want to see the uh, heroin-dependent person on the streets, the homeless man or woman on the street, shooting up in front of me. I don't want to see that. It's distasteful. Well, you know what? We have, I think, as a, respon- uh, as a society, a responsibility to help that person because they're not being productive. They're on this uh, death march, if I can put it that way, that is only going to end in ruin. The disease of substance dependence is 100% fatal unless I succeed in arresting it, is what I say. And the symptoms of the disease are tolerance, which means I need more of the substance to achieve the desired effect. Um, there is continued use despite negative consequences. Um, there is uh, failed attempts to quit and continuing going back to use. And the treatment for that is abstinence, one, and some sort of network of sober support. I don't care what it is. It could be AA. It could be NA. It could be rational recovery. There's more than one way, just like there's more, more than one way to get to heaven, in my opinion. There's more than one way to get and stay sober. And actually, the majority of people that get sober do it through what's called spontaneous sobriety. Same thing with cigarettes, they, which is nicotine's more uh, dependence-inducing than heroin. It gets to your, nicotine gets to your brain faster than heroin does. So what's the point? Advocating for people that, are, that can't advocate for themselves and encouraging people that go to 12-step meetings. Don't say, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. So forward to the first edition of our Bible, if you will, our big book says, when in public, and all the meetings I've been to are in public, we omit our first name, we omit our name, and identify ourselves only as members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that way, I'm identifying with the solution and not the problem. So you will never hear me say, I'm Tom and I'm an alcoholic. So, Tom, you know that there are people that uh, people give up on, I believe, never giving up on anybody, but... 
you can't drag them into an AA meeting and uh, get them off the street. They're homeless. Uh, they're so addicted. People say, well, where do, you, where do you put them? What do you do with them? You mean they're dependent? They're dependent. <laughs> and, you know, say, well, what are you going to do? How can you help this person? Well, we all hit a bottom, right? We all have a bottom. The bottom could be death, unfortunately. You know, um, I have a good friend that says, that person had to die for me to realize how I need to take good care of myself and that I cannot go back to X, Y, or Z. So my advocacy journalism has also extended to what I call the intimacy disorder or intimacy issues. Unfortunately, society, people in my field call it sex and love addiction. You might know some people that are alleged to have that problem. Tiger Woods allegedly had that problem. And let me, let me parse that out for you. The intimacy issue can come in many forms. Uh, chronic masturbation, uh, overuse of pornography to the point where you cannot be with a human being. You have porn-induced erectile dysfunction. It could be uh, regular use of sex workers. Um, it could be, you know, serial adultery. It takes many, many forms, but just like the disease of substance dependence, it comes with tolerance. So a person's flavor for pornography might go from very vanilla heterosexual sex to threesomes or massage therapy sex or whatever, right? Um, unfortunately, we're keeping people away that need the very help we propose or, or pro, uh, profess that we want to give. Who wants to raise their hands to and say, yeah, you know, I'm a sex addict, and, oh, by the way, I acquired AIDS as a result of my, you know, uh, unsafe sex. Who wants to do that? Only 10% of the people that meet the criteria in the United States for substance dependence seek treatment. Why is that, Stu? Why? I've not read one thing that says why. I'm going to tell you that I think internalized shame, stigmatizing language, and those negative messages that I tell myself, I'm not worth it, I'll never get it, I can't, I won't, I'll never, that keeps us from exercising the help that's so readily available. I was in Puerto Rico a few years ago, and um, it's a Sunday afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me, a beautiful day, and I'm walking down the street, and there's a, a woman um, lying on the sidewalk, I don't know if she was conscious and, you know, with sores on her. And, and people are walking by her like she was a piece of paper. And I ran down to the corner with a policewoman there. And I said, there's a woman lying on the sidewalk. What can you do? She said, we can't force them to go to the hospital. We can't force them to get help. Would you say that's similar to some of the things here? Uh, Let me bring it closer to home, Stu. When I was news director in the 80s, we had something called the Norwich State Hospital. Yeah, of course. Norwich, Connecticut, is one of the few cities and towns of the 165 in our Constitution state that has their own welfare department. So what transpired was this revolving door of people going into the hospital for treatment, which I hope was beneficial, getting discharged, and not going back to their home communities, which should have been mandated, I think, but hanging around in downtown Norwich, you've, you saw them in the 80s. You know, there was one famous woman, I think she was called the Spider Woman, um, because they know they're going back. They're no, they know that their chronic mental health issues are not going to be adequately addressed for whatever reason. There's no, there's no reason to blame anybody. There's only interest in observing what's going right or going wrong, right? So chronic mental health is a huge epidemic. And what happens is there's a guy named John Bradshaw famous, famous uh, counselor, and he would say, I hit every uh, branch on the tree down. What's that mean? He had an alcohol problem. He had an eating disorder. He had uh, intimacy issues. You name it, he had it. Gambling, I would imagine. 
And he wrote the famous book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. Very dense book. I recommend it, but you're going to have to take your time getting through it. And what he was saying is that if we don't help people heal their shame, we will not be successful in helping them heal heal their substance dependence or their relationship problems or dot, dot, dot. Does that make sense, Stu? You've got to certainly uh, involve yourself. You know, I see people uh, looking at... Los Angeles, and they, they're lying on the sidewalks. Um, do you drag them off? What do you do? I mean, how do you get through to them when they're so intoxicated or or so uh, you hung get, up on drugs? A, you get them to a detox. Right? Yeah. We should, we should just like we can mandate a, a person that has a mental health crisis, we can paper them, it's called, for uh, a minimum 72-hour stay in a hospital. We should be able to paper people that are so intoxicated that they're a risk to themselves or others. Why that isn't, maybe it is. It doesn't seem to be happening. It doesn't seem to be happening. In a lot of places. And, I, and I think that myself. Like, how can you just leave them there? Stu, I have horror story after horror story, and I love the local hospitals. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to name any hospital. But I had client after client say, I went to, deta- I went to the hospital emergency room, Tom. And you know what they did? I was like girding myself for something negative. They said they waited me out until I sobered up, and then they said to me, you don't want to go to detox, do you? So instead of taking ownership of that client, they wanted to slough them off back onto the streets. Absolutely. Cr- that's criminal. That's in my never going to work. That's criminal, in my opinion. It's never going to work. And if you don't heal the relationships, I want to say one more thing <laughs> about relationships and families. Everybody in the equation has work to do, except it's too easy to say, oh, he, she, they have the problem. I don't need to do anything. You help a person get sober through detox or a 30-day treatment program or longer, and you put them back in the very same environment that was conducive to them drinking and, and using other substances, what's going to happen? It is a fait accompli. It is, it's a no-brainer. But everybody in the equation has to do their work. And I know a woman in Rhode Island that does a eight-week program, I think, for loved ones teaching them about the disease and about how they need to get well before they can help their loved one. See, but these days, Tom, you can't commit somebody. I mean, if they're an adult and they, they go to detox and great, and they okay, see you later. Well, you know what's going on, though, that's really good. Is called They're called recovery advocacies, mm-hmm. or advocates, rather. They are either embedded in hospitals or on call to go to the hospital and speak to somebody and help them transition to detox and or long-term treatment. It started in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and I think it was called the ANGEL program. Um, I'm not sure if any local um, police departments are involved in that, but I will say that uh, Southeast Mental Health Authority, the uh, successor to uh, Norwich State Hospital, they've been having uh, mental health clinicians right along with police for a long time, a long time. And I wouldn't send a plumber to deal with a fire. Why do I send a police officer to deal with a mental health issue? Obviously, if there's somebody that's in risk, at risk of hurting themselves mm-hmm. or others, you want pol- a police presence. But that has only inflamed things in the past. God bless the police. They can't, like teachers, they can't be all things to all peoples do. So having a, a trained mental health worker that can de-escalate things, because just the badge and the, and the uniform can escalate things. They don't want to, but that can be the result, especially if I have an arrest history and I'm under the influence. <laughs> You're the enemy, right? You're the reason I'm having these issues. Let me take this call. Hi, WICH. Oh, yes. I was wondering why Norwich is so nice in the uh, Prince of newspaper, but it's a very dangerous place. Why do they uh, make I, I don't understand what you're saying. Safe? Thank you. I, didn't, I couldn't hear him. 
he was saying, why is Norwich so nice? And I don't know what nice means, but maybe he was referring to the welfare department and the social services department, which I'm telling you, the people, I worked with uh, some people in that department, uh, Ms., Mrs. Gomes, she recently retired. Amazing. The woman that had a department before her, big UConn women's basketball fan, amazing people. You have to be so, what's the word, selfless at times to work in this field. We are sometimes, I am one of, one of them. You're sometimes referred to as a wounded healer. If you're working in the helping professions like substance or mental health, you're, you've got your own wounds. And I say to my clients, uh, hey, are you with a clinic? Were you with a clinician that was doing their own work that they were in therapy too? I said no. no I, we didn't even ask that question. Well, that's a whole other story about self-disclosure. I say to people, if you're with a therapist who's not in therapy, you're probably with the wrong therapist. I was with one man, uh, the right Reverend Dr. David Eaton, for 20 years on and off. He was a literal gray beard Jungian therapist, who is the reason I was a, I became a counselor because I had the. Uh, What's the misfortune of saying out loud in a therapy session, you know, I think I'd like to be a counselor. And he says, well, why not? Why not go for it? I said, well, I can only go to take one class a semester. I can only, you know, I got to pay child support. I got to work. He said, Tom, all that's BS. If you want to, you will. And the last thing I will say, Stu, on that subject of, of kindness and, and skills, if I hoard my skills, like the Grinch, you know, solve world hunger, tell no one, I'm doing a disservice to my community and society at large. I am, and that, that crap about uh, do something nice and don't tell anybody, that's crap. Do something nice and tell everyone in the hopes of what? That they'll turn around and do something. Give your gifts freely. The Bible says to those whom much is given, much is expected. And I am so blessed and grateful to live the life that I have and now have a, a granddaughter to, to enjoy the latter years of my so, life. So, Tom, the people who are counseling in certain issues like alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, do they make better counsels if they have been uh, through it themselves? That's a controversial subject. Uh, back in the day, that's all you needed to do was be a person in recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, actually, when I worked for the state of Connecticut for, eight, Connecticut for 18 months in the Young Adult Services Program, longest five years of my life, I like to jokingly say, uh, they were mandated that um, their substance use counselors had to be uh, master's level, master's trained, master's uh, educated. So that trend has stopped. Certainly, people can relate to me better. I don't know what it is, Stu. I, I've had silver hair for a long time. I have Karen Dole to thank for that. I used to call it gray. And, uh, no, it looks great. When she was passing, she said, uh, I was laying in her lap and I looked up at her and she was stroking my hair and she said, Tom, your hair's not gray, it's silver. And mm -hmm. with tears in my eyes, do I looked at her and I said, I love you, sweetheart. Just that turn of phrase that, oh, it's not gray, which is negative in our society, right? It's silver. It reminds me of my favorite cowboy, Hopalong Cassidy. Tell me. I just love this, his silver hair. <laughs> my father had white hair, and when I grew a beard last year, it came in white, white. Yeah. I guess that's my brain draining to my... Uh, my chin. I'm going to take a little break. We've got a few more minutes here. If you would like to talk with Tom, you can do so. But i got a uh, few more questions we're going to get to. Stay with us. WICH, very interesting uh, program, as I suspected with Tom. Stay with us. Tom Graney is with us. And certainly if you're ever, uh, you know, giving uh, lectures somewhere, or you want to know where they are so I can promote it for you and people can sit and talk and ask you questions as well, but just two quick things. Well, it's not going to be quick, as quick as we can. First of all... <laughs> Are you saying I talk too long? No, it's just because <laughs> I could go on for hours. But first of all, um, legalizing marijuana. 
bad thing? Yeah, it was a total money grab. I've been on record as saying that over and over again. Uh, the problem with uh, our country is that they demonize cannabis. Um, you remember the movie from back in the day, uh, something about cannabis madness. It was it was saying that our, our youth were going to attack each other sexually under the influence of cannabis. As a result of them put, misclassifying it as X uh, uh, substance, we have not done the requisite research, and we will not. We're so proprietary as a country, we will not rely on the uh, research of other countries. There's plenty of research about it. The problem with marijuana today, cannabis, as my son prefers to call it, is the THC levels, which is the psychoactive element, substance in, in, in cannabis, is way higher than it used to be. It's not our cannabis of the 60s, 70s, and 80s even. It, the percentages are 50% and higher. So it's a it's a naked money grab, without the the proper present. Um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Proper research and and uh, investigation. So Tom, uh, let's uh, leave this on a well a hopeful positive note. There, are, we'll just say there are people listening right now to the program. Some are alcoholics. Alcohol dependent, you mean? Alcohol dependent, drug dependent. Chronic mental health issues. Chronic mental health issues, or some are being, uh, you know, abused, and they say, well, okay, okay, and we'll, what's the first thing I should do? And, and some people that just don't like themselves, because of what you alluded to, maybe you grew up in a family environment. I know I had a neighbor once who used to talk to his kid, and I said, this kid is never going to go anywhere. He used to call him Tardo, and I used to get so aggravated with this guy. So I know this kid is going to carry that for a long time in his life. What's the first step that these folks can do? Two words. Help me. Okay. And AT&T used to have a catchphrase, reach out and uh, touch someone. If I am in the audience right now and I am feeling bereft or have suicidal ideation, you can call the hotline. Um, you can call 211 um, but the the help is readily available. Yes, we have a crisis of availability of long-term treatment, affordable treatment. Yes, that's all true. But the help is available. Our system, the Medicaid system, is very uh, rich, if I can put it that way. I know people that you wouldn't think that are on Medicaid that are on Medicaid, and now they're off of it because of the pandemic passing. Um, but a grateful heart, Stu, will not drink or drug. A grateful heart will not kick that dog or verbally abuse their child. A grateful heart, a, a person who has more insight and understanding about themselves, won't be self-deprecating either to themselves or outwardly. I used to be the king of sarcasm, Stu, and I wrote an article about this. Tell me when you're tired of hearing me say that. And it was all about using humor and counseling and the revelation that I use sarcasm to wound. Sarcasm can be very cutting. The old joke is never let them see that they're bleeding from the ears and nose when mm -hmm. you're done talking to them. So there's a lot of uh, lack of health out there. We used to use the word dysfunction. You know, my family was the Brady Bunch before the Brady Bunch. We put the dis in dysfunction. It was, an, it was a not-so-okay oh, corral, if, you can, if you're old enough to remember the okay corral. Um, so there's hope. There's, there's opportunity. So when you say, say help me, uh, you certainly 211, I think people forget what a great vehicle that is to direct people to, whether it be uh, women who are in trouble or... Uh, you know, groups, as you mentioned, that are uh, women shelters. But if you said, help me to me, and I would say, okay, Tom, I'm going to do some research and find some places for you. But the first thing that most people should do is... Surrender. Surrender, surrender. surrender equals freedom. 
Uh, the and first, that is surrender and call... Yeah, the, the Southeast Mental Health um, Authority has a crisis number. Um, mm-hmm. We can get that to you. Um, if you're feeling like you want to hurt yourself or you're... Yeah, you're, I, want, I want to keep... Well, I, yeah. There's a national hotline you can call. The help is there. It, it, it's, it's incumbent upon me to say, help me. It's incumbent upon me to surrender to my truth and my reality is that I can't do this thing called life alone. I don't have to, right? I don't have to. But if you're struggling out there, what's the, what's the tendency? The tendency is to isolate. I don't want to spread my unhappiness. I don't want to even be seen, Stu. It's too easy for me to sit as a single man in my condo in Westerly, Rhode Island, and not even see the outside. I've been there and done that. I have seasonal depression, right? I had depression and loss of appetite from eye drops, for goodness sake. I had uh, glaucoma diagnosed back in July. I was on this one um, eye medication called Timolol, and it was right around uh, September when my uh, daughter-in-law was having her uh, baby shower, and I'm depressed. My daughter flew in from Colorado, and why am I depressed? I looked up Timolol online, and... Not a common side effect, but a side effect is depression and loss of appetite. I lost 20 pounds, too. Not the way I wanted to lose the weight. Certainly, um, I think what you've been talking about is very helpful for our community. And I, I don't think people realize, Tom, what really is available to them. It's easy to say, well, there's nothing. There's no Norwich Hospital. There's nobody that can help. But there are some good organizations that can help people. Yeah, Safe Futures, I mentioned them, yeah. uh, Southeast Mental Health uh, Mobile Outreach. Um, you can call uh, the 211 hotline. There's any number of things you can do, but it begins with that admission that I need help, and help is available. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier before we went on the air that there's a song by Ziggy Marley. I'm not sure of the title, but the, the lyrics are, you've got to give a little uh, love, have a little hope, make this world a little better. And then there's Bobby McFerrin, who I saw in concert at the Guard in New London. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy. You oh, know, yeah, it's my attitude. It's my attitude. Right, Stu, it, what attitude do I bring to my day? There was a house manager at uh, Stonington Institute when I worked there, a woman. She said, did you rise and shine today, or did you rise and whine, W-I-N-E, today? <laughs> yeah. Not even W-H-I-N-E, whine. Speaking of that, people who are chronically uh, complaining about it and can drag you down, is that another form of uh, don't like myself, or could we do another Absolutely. hour on that? Oh, we could, but it's like uh, I, I dislike myself so much. I loathe myself so much. I'm not going to be happy unless I make you miserable. Yeah. Hey, it's always a pleasure, buddy. I feel blessed to uh, have you I as hope a... we can do this again because uh, we can sit and chat for a very long time. You're the best, too. I love you. All right. Take care of yourself.